Thanks for tuning in to the Follow Church weekly message. Our hope and prayer is that you will find this message uplifting and challenging as we seek to follow Jesus in our community for His glory. It's just great just to read the word out, to declare God's word in public together. Um, this is one of my favorite parts. Just, just let this sink in and let God speak to you um, through it today. So let's read Ephesians 5. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. But among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For, all, for this, for of this, you can be sure. No immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person as an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. For you were once darkness, but you are now, but now you are a light in the Lord. Live as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It's shameful to even mention what the disobedient do in secret. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. That's why it is said, wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord. Always give thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit, to your, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the saviour. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by washing her with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect his husband. Please welcome Craig. Right. Good morning, everyone. I guess you're wondering why I'm up here and not Ray. 
so we got a rather frantic call on Friday. And for those of you that know, Tash has been hospitalized. So uh, Ray's just had to step down from preaching this morning and uh, asked that I step in for him. So I want you to try and imagine the panic that occurred <laughs> off the back of that. Um, so uh, I've decided to, to go back to a sermon I preached some years ago, but specifically to try and tie it in with actually what we're learning in Genesis. So we're not going to do Genesis 28 this morning, for those of you that have prepared, but Genesis 29 is actually all about the marriage of Jacob to Leah and Rachel. And uh, some years ago, as I said, I'd preached a sermon on marriage. I thought, well, let's see if we can set some context around marriage, uh, and then that'll lead into the, the, the talk next week that Dave is going to be doing on marriage. All right, so I would ask that you uh, consider and just pray for Ray and Tash during this time as well, and just see if you can come beside them. All right, so some of you have heard me tell the story. Uh, I think of the leadership talk I did. I spoke about um, Laura and I and, and, uh, and our marriage. You know, we're probably a very typical married couple. You know, we met, became best friends, uh, and then only did I fall in love and we got married. Uh, but a few years into our marriage, we were both career people and working very hard. In fact, we had competitions about who could get home the latest because we knew that that person wouldn't have to prepare dinner. <laughs> uh, so this became to create a pattern, uh, a pattern of busyness. And uh, we really became passing ships in the night. Uh, we didn't really have a bad marriage, uh, but it wasn't what we'd hoped it would be. Uh, eight years into our marriage, Laura fell pregnant, and the arrival of our firstborn, Aidan, brought both joy and stress, as I'm sure you can all testify to. But guess what? I kept up the workplace, uh, and I left Laura to shift gear from workplace to uh, home place. And as I became more and more distracted with work, Lara felt increasingly isolated as she coped with the demands of a newborn. We were living with low-level irritation towards one another, and bickering and criticism seemed to pepper most of our conversations. The spontaneity and fun and excitement of our courtship days was over. A distant memory. And then one day, a year after Aidan was born, Lara turned to me, and said that she no longer loved me as a husband, but only as a brother. Wow, can you imagine what that does to you? So I was floored and really just thought, well, what had happened to us? This is not what I'd imagined my marriage to be. Well, I'm happy to say that this is no longer the situation in our marriage, thankfully, as the Lord has taken us on a wonderful journey of recovering and healing. And I hope to share a few of those lessons with you this morning. But you know, this type of thing can happen to anyone. Somewhere, somehow, every marriage becomes a struggle. The person who once was your escape from responsibility has become your most significant responsibility. Reasons for attraction now become sources of irritation. In physics, the law of entropy says that all systems left unattended will eventually run down and decay. And unless new energy is pumped into that system, this organism will disintegrate. Entropy is at work in many areas other than physics, including our marriages. A marriage will not continue to be good simply because two people love each other, are compatible, and get off to a fine start. On the contrary, marriages left to their own devices will tend to wear out, break down, and they will ultimately disintegrate. 
So to keep relationships working, we must constantly pump new energy into them. At some point, we are all confronted with the fact that our marriage is not what it was meant to be or what we had intended it to be. A lifelong relationship where God is honored and where unity, love, and understanding have room to live and grow. We realize we need something more enduring than romance, something deeper than shared hobbies, something more binding than physical attraction. We all need something more than marital survival skills. So what do you do when your marriage becomes what it was not intended to be? Church family, it is essential to understand that a marriage of love, unity, and understanding is not rooted just in romance. It is rooted in worship. We are all made to worship. The question is whether we worship the creator or the creation. A marriage will suffer when the people in it are looking to get from the creation what they were only ever meant to get from the Creator. Another way of putting it is that the problem in our marriages is not that we don't love one another enough. The problem is that we don't love God enough. And because we don't love God enough, we don't love one another as we should. Paul Tripp in his excellent book, What Did You Expect?, states that marriages are fixed vertically before they're ever fixed horizontally. He maintains that couples get married with unrealistic expectations, and unrealistic expectations always lead to disappointment. In most situations, our expectations of a good marriage are shaped by what the world portrays. Sitcoms, Hollywood movies, romance novels, celebrities, gossip magazines, this gives us this picture. Brothers and sisters, one of the greatest battlefields of our Christian journey is our marriages. We are at a crossroads here. The statistics show that the divorce rate amongst Christians is no better than that of the secular world. We have allowed the world and its thinking into our marriages and we are paying the price for this lack of vigilance. With that in mind, I want to address some false expectations around marriage and provide some practical advice from Ephesians 5, and more specifically, verse 33. But before I do this, a word to those who are single, who are unmarried, separated, even teenagers, and some of our young adults. Don't tune out. Hopefully this will set a foundation for you as you consider your future spouses and future relationships. Those of you that are separated, by God's grace, perhaps maybe somebody else will come into your lives and hopefully some of this advice we can use within those contexts as well. So my hope and prayer is that we will still be able to see Christ in the Sermon on Marriage and be able to apply some of these principles to those future relationships. Well, I would venture to say that there are many Christians living in Christless marriages. Without knowing what they have done, they have constructed a law-based rather than a grace-based marriage. And because God is not in his rightful place, husbands and wives are not in their rightful places. Instead of being heirs together of the grace of life, they're partners in stress and bitterness. I want to hold in front of your marriage the most accurate mirror ever made, which is the Bible. What did God intend when he created marriage. Let's face it, we as believers often mistakenly treat the Bible as if it were arranged by topic. 
So when we're talking about marriage, we run to all the marriage passages. But the Bible is not an encyclopedia. It is God's great story of redemption. The world of the Bible is like your world, messy and broken. The, Bible of the, the people of the Bible are like you and your spouse, weak and failing. The situations of the Bible are like yours, complicated and unexpected. What about some of the marriages in the Bible? Just think of Abraham and Sarah, David and Bathsheba, Jacob, Leah and Rachel, which we'll learn more about next week. Fine examples. Right? And this is what we see in the Old Testament. It's a view of man's brokenness. It's not meant to set up this perfect picture of what Christians and people should look like. It's to show you just the absolute brokenness of humanity and man and their desperate need for a Savior in Christ. Such a contrast between the Old Testament and the New Testament when Christ comes. Even in our series on Genesis, all right, haven't we seen this play out over and over again? All of the issues of marriage and children, the deceit and the pain and the lies. So next week, Dave's going to be setting some of the context around Genesis 29, which is all about payback time for Jacob and his deceit of the birth, stealing the birthright from Esau and lying to his dad. Now he goes and he gets payback from his father-in-law. So we'll hear more about that part of the story next week. So looking through the human sin towards what God intended for marriage, we see that most foundationally, marriage is the doing of God. It is God's doing because it is His design in the creation of male and female. It is God Himself who sees that man's solitude is not good. And it is He who sets out to unite a man and a woman in marriage. Marriage is also God's doing in the fact that God Himself performs the union referred to in Ephesians 5, where we see the verse, the two will become one flesh. Therefore, when a husband and wife speak their vows. It is not a man or a woman or a pastor or parent who are the main characters. The main character is God. The world does not acknowledge this, which is one of the reasons why marriage is treated so casually. And Christians often don't act this truth out, which is one of the reasons why marriage in the church is not seen as the wonder that it is. We see in Ephesians 5.32 from our text, that marriage has everything to do about the relationship to Jesus and Christ, to Jesus Christ. That the highest meaning and the ultimate purpose of marriage is to put the covenant relationship of Christ and His church on display. That your marriage is really a tool and a test to deepen and demonstrate your love and your reverence to your Lord. So if you don't have that foundation... Where will you find the reasons to continue working on your marriage during those rough periods? You won't find the reasons in your spouse, since he or she is a flawed person in need of God's transforming grace. You won't find them in the ease of your circumstances, since you still live in a world that is groaning and broken. You will only find your reasons to continue by looking up and knowing that you are not alone. God has brought your stories together and placed them right in the middle of his redemptive story. As long as he is creator, as long as he is sovereign, as long as he is the saviour, you have reason to get up in the morning and love one another, even when it doesn't feel like it.
And even though you aren't yet what he created you to be. An important point that Paul Tripp talks about in his marriage book is that you are a sinner married to a sinner. Even though this seems obvious, many people get married with unrealistic expectations of who they are marrying. And it's only a matter of time before the rose-colored glasses come off. And you realize that you both bring something into your marriage that is destructive. And that thing is called sin. Most of the troubles we face in marriage are not intentional or personal. Most often what is really happening is that life is being affected by the weakness and failure of the person you are living with. So if your wife is having a bad day, that bad day will splash on you in some way. If your husband is angry with his job, there is a good possibility that he will bring that anger home with him. If you minimize the heart struggle that both of you carry into your marriage, here's what will happen. You will turn moments of ministry into moments of anger by personalizing what is not personal. We therefore get hostile in our responses, and rather than searching for ways to help, we turn a moment of weakness into a major confrontation. Let's flesh it out a little. I see this often when Laura points out something to me that needs correcting. My first response is defense, all right, and sometimes anger. So I respond in a way that is not loving towards Laura. That's my first reaction. I get hostile in this situation. I don't see it as an opportunity to minister to Laura, to show Christ in the grace. I rather respond in a sinful manner and disrespectful or unloving. You see, God is committed to transforming your spouse by His grace. So He will cause you to see, hear, and experience your spouse's need for change so that you can be an agent of His or her rescue. Instead of me defending, I need to see this as an opportunity to show Christ in my response. Be gracious, loving, and supportive. God's willingness to complete the work He has started in your marriage is wondrously reflected in the empty tomb. Why would He go to such an extent to rescue us? Why would He sacrifice His own Son? Because He is willing. Even when we are unwilling, filled with pride and wanting our own way, God is still willing. You and I need to recognize that God's willingness is motivated not by what He sees in us, but by what is inside of Him. His own character wants to make us better and to be more like His Son. So I've briefly touched on a biblical grounded view of marriage, and we have looked at false expectations within our marriage. Let's now look at some practical help that God has given us regarding the differences between husbands and wives. And I'd like to focus on verse 33. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This little verse is actually tucked away at the end of Ephesians 5. And it's often glossed over as we go straight into children obey your parents. Um, but I want to just settle on this verse for a bit and unpack it. What I find interesting in this verse is that it's not both parties who are commanded to love. Only one party is commanded to love, the husband. This verse gives no command to a wife to love her husband. 
Why is that? In short, it's because God has designed a woman to love. Nurturing, sensitivity, love, empathy, compassion are all part of her nature. God, however, commands the husband to love his wife with agape love. The Greek word used here, agape, is the highest of the four types of love described in the Bible. And it's translated as selfless, unconditional love. Since a husband is designed to not love as naturally as his wife, what she does by nature, her husband must do under divine command and with a greater struggle. On the flip side of this, verse 33 gives no command to the husband to respect his wife. That command seems to be reserved for wives. God is not saying that husbands should not respect their wives. So as we read in 1 Peter, that husbands are to live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. What scripture is implying is that man has been designed to need respect more, just as a woman has been designed to need love more. God has created a man to work and achieve, to protect and provide, to serve and to lead. And something in a man longs for his wife to look up to him as he fulfills this role. And when she does, it motivates him, not because he is arrogant, but because of how God has constructed him. Now in today's society, this is quite confrontational. It's not the kind of thing said at a political rally. But verse 33 is clear. Let each one of you, husbands, love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Men and women are created differently, and they desire different things, regardless of what the media might try and tell you nowadays. It would be easy enough to deduce that communication is the key to marriage. But to say this is to assume that both spouses are actually speaking the same language. Emerson Egricks, in his book, Love and Respect, explains it like this. After more than three decades of pastoring, counseling married couples, and conducting marriage conferences, I've learned that, in fact, the wife speaks a love language and the husband speaks a respect language. They don't realize this, of course, but because he's speaking one kind of language, respect, and she's speaking another, love, there is little or no understanding and little or no communication. As humans, we need water and food to survive. And we can survive longer without food than what we can with water. This is the same principle with love and respect. For a husband, respect is his water and love is his food. He can survive longer without love, but needs a constant supply of respect. The opposite applies to our wives. Love is her water and respect her food. She can survive longer without respect, but will need a constant supply of love. So when we spoke about entropy in the beginning of the sermon, I said that we must constantly pump new energy into our marriages for them to grow. Love and respect are two of the sources of this energy. They are the petrol for petrol cars and the diesel for diesel cars, so to speak. But why does God give commands to husbands and wives to do what they are actually not naturally equipped to do. Seems odd. I propose to you that this is because 
the Lord does not want us to trust in our own strength, but to lean on Him to give us strength where we are weak. Let's see how this plays out. Let's say that I come home. Oh, Dave, can you pop that photograph up? I, I thought I would use this as an opportunity. <laughs> After a, a bit of a hectic day, this was, got to go, got to go, throw clothes on my couch, and that's what it looked like. So I thought, okay, here's a perfect example that we can talk through. So let's look at the love and respect relationship. I come home. Not that it played out like this, it played out quite differently. So let's imagine it played out in a negative sense first. All right. Look at this, look at this mess. All right. Tidy it up now. I'm sick and tired of it. All right. This place is a pigsty. Okay? Disrespectful statement, maybe we could interpret it that way. Unloving response. All right. Well, why don't you do something about it? I'll tidy it up when I'm right and ready. Okay? Unloving response back to Laura who now responds with a, another disrespectful one. You do nothing around this house. All right, I have to pull all the weight around here. No, 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 the rest of it. Not saying that this happened. <laughs> okay. Which then causes me to respond in a continual unloving manner. And then she responds with a, with, with a disrespectful manner. I respond in an unloving manner. And what we get is the circle, commonly known as a vicious circle. And it's just barrels and barrels and grows and grows and suddenly we're thermonuclear. Right? And you often sit there and think, how did we land up here? It's like a bunch of clothes on a couch. It's like the smallest thing. Some of the things that Laura and I have argued about in our marriage have been about the smallest things. And somehow or other, they just escalate. So when I came across this and I read about this, I was like, that's it! That's what's happening! We're talking different languages. So... This is how it breaks down. It's a cycle of escalation. And you know what the amazing thing is, and I realized when I first read this, is once I understood the cycle, you realize that you can break it. And it's one of you's responsibility to try and break it. It's my responsibility to try and respond in a loving manner. And Laura's responsibility to use my love language to respond in a respectful manner. If we don't, the cycle just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. So that's how we have to figure it. We've got to figure out how we can eject into that loop and break that cycle. To play this out differently, we need to recognize that we are in this vicious circle and that some of us are going to need to break it. One of you needs to respond in this loving language that is relevant to your ears. I need to shift my language from unloving to loving and just as the Bible says, a kind word turns away anger. That's how I need to respond. That could have been broken down so much easier. Oh, sorry, Hans, I was in a rush this morning. I'll make it up to you some other way. How about a massage while we're watching the news or something like that? All right? Score big points with that one. All right? Does this kind of situation sound familiar to anyone? We see this escalation, don't we? If you realize this is a weak area of yours, and you struggle to love or respect your spouse, see this as part of your sanctification journey. And let me encourage you to pray. Men, how often have you prayed and asked the Lord to help you love your wife more? Doesn't seem like a normal prayer. You almost expect it, well, she's, I'm married to her, therefore I love her. Wives, 
How often have you come before the Lord and asked Him to help you respect your husbands more? Also not like a normal prayer you think you'd pray. James 4, 2-3 says, You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Let's look at some practical ways for men to be more loving towards their wives. I found some great advice in a book I read called The Exemplary Husband by Stuart Scott. First and foremost, men, it is your responsibility as a spiritual leader of your home to always make the first move, regardless of whether you think you are in the right. So during a time of conflict, when that vicious circle is spinning, the onus is in fact on you to strive to break that circle and to show a loving response, as you are commanded to do. You do this, and you are likely to touch the deepest part of your wife's heart, especially during disagreement and conflict. You are speaking her language. Secondly, praise and encourage your wives. Let her know that you value her efforts and commitment, and that you prize her and the part she plays in your life and the lives of your children. Be challenged by verses like like we see in Proverbs 31, 28, when her husband also rises up and he praises her. Finally, men, I want to challenge you directly. From these Ephesians verses, we see that the Lord has given you authority in your relationship with your wife. But the authority must be active. It requires you to use it and to lead. It is not an optional extra or responsibility you can abdicate. You bear a unique responsibility for the moral and spiritual leadership and growth of your wife and children. Scott describes our responsibility as husbands in a way that really convicted me. And to this day, I often reflect on it and see how often I fail in this area. He says that as husbands, we have to take our wives and our children and wrap them in this magnificent wrapping paper with a beautiful bow on top, just decorated, and present them as a gift to Christ. That's the extent of which we must love them, nurture, and support and grow, to present them as this gift. It means leading her and the kids spiritually to Christ, continually helping them grow in their love for the Lord through your example and sacrificial love. God will one day hold you accountable for your faithfulness or lack thereof in this area. In fact, we read in 1 Peter that the lack of faithfulness And understanding in loving and leading your wives even results in your prayers being hindered. John Piper says in his book, The Momentary Marriage, marriage, that to provide spiritual food for the family, you as men must know the spiritual food. This means that a man must go hard after God. You can only lead spiritually if you are growing in your own knowledge of God and love for God. If you are feeding your soul with the Word of God, you will be drawn to feed your wife and children. If this sounds overwhelming, be encouraged that Christ does not call you to do what He does not empower you to do. If your earthly father never taught you how to lead, your heavenly father most surely will. Let's look at some practical ways for wives to show respect to their husbands. Firstly, wives, a word of caution. You cannot demand that your husband takes leadership. If your husband is a passive Christian, your your spouse's failure to lead does not give you the right to step into the gap. Your excellence as a helper to him may very well be God's plan for improving his leadership role in your family. Secondly, 
right or wrong, most men identify themselves by their work. As a wife, you can start to understand how important your husband's work is to him. You will take a giant leap towards communicating respect and honor two things that he values even more than love. Not telling your husband how much you appreciate and respect him working and providing for the family and reflecting on some accomplishments he may or may not have had is like a husband who thinks a lot about how much he loves his wife but never tells her. And finally, a wife's criticism often has the opposite effect of producing righteousness. How often do Christian wives fall in the trap of worldly thinking when they marry a man and then become angry angry because he continues to act like one? (laughs) So they embark on a journey and try to change him into a woman, a version of their best girlfriend. (laughs) For example, my extrovert, extrovert wife has tried for many years to change her introverted husband into something who into someone who is energized by people and social interaction. But she's come to accept that I often need moments of solitude to recharge. In conclusion, I think we can all acknowledge that marriages today are struggling under the load of mistakes, sin, and selfishness on the part of both husbands and wives. God gives imperfect women to imperfect men so they can be heirs together in the grace of life. The home front should not be a spiritual battlefield. You fight your husband and every verbal punch you land leaves a bruise on you as well. He practices his faults and you practice your bitterness. You're both practicing divorce. Your children watch and they are practicing being poor future mothers and fathers. The difference between a good marriage and a bad one is not found in good husbands and good wives versus bad husbands and bad wives. For as we have seen, all marriages are made up of two sinners who have lots of faults. A good marriage is good because one or both of you have learned to overlook the other's faults and to love or respect the other as they are. Sometimes that means being willing to serve when it's the last thing we want to do. Sometimes it means being willing to listen when our instinct is to argue. And sometimes it means humbly asking for forgiveness when we are tempted to argue that we are right. There is one thing that we know for sure. As we rest in God's grace, we are called to give grace to one another. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, that it shines a light on this area of our lives that is so important to us, Father. We see, Lord, that our marriages are under attack by this world. We know, Lord, that we have begun to accept and adopt some of the worldly thinking around what a marriage should be and should look like. And Lord, we are paying the price for that as a church. So Father, as we reflect upon this thing, this wonderful thing that you have created, Lord, we pray that you have given each of us wisdom into how we can apply it in our current marriages. For those who aren't married, Lord, that you would have given them wisdom to see how they can apply it for future relationships that they would go into, Heavenly Father. We thank you that your word is practical. And we thank you, Lord, that it is so full of such wonderful treasures that we can continually seek them out and be edified and glorified by them. So we thank you for this time together. In Jesus' name, amen.
Thanks for listening to our message this week. If it's stirred your heart and you would like to talk to someone more about it or pray with someone, please get in touch with us at info at follow.church and one of our pastoral team will get back to you as soon as possible. If you'd like more information about Follow and our various ministries, including weekly service times and location, please check out our website, www.follow.church. Thanks again for joining us. God bless.